Welcome to the 2020 Halloween Special Edition of In My Own Words. This is the full, complete special with minor breaks in between reviews. If you would rather listen to an individual film that I'm talking about here, that review will also be made available. But until then, let's sit back, enjoy, as we talk about the five kings of horror cinema. Let's get started. In 1978, arguably one of the most influential slasher films was born. Halloween, the OG slasher film. And I know many film critics have declared that Psycho is the first slasher film, and that is true in a technical sense, but the trademark 1980s-styled slasher flick, which has yet to really be recreated in modern era, was born in Halloween. Halloween follows, well, I don't need to go into the plot too much. I'm sure everyone listening knows the plot of Halloween and most of these movies I'll be discussing. But Halloween follows a young lady trying to babysit and a slasher killer shows up and stalks her. And there you go. This killer, Michael Myers, is an enigma amongst slasher film monsters. He is unclouded by any sense of conscience, any sense of reason, and only in later films, as they got schlockier and schlockier, did you ever learn his backstory, which admittedly made him less interesting. Halloween really captures the feeling of what is called the stranger danger cinema in which you see a pleasant town, Haddonfield, Illinois, and there is a man walking, staring, watching, and you never fully see who it is, you never get a good look at them, but they're incredibly threatening. This man is Michael. And it's important to note that he is not this villainous figure that needs a mask to complete his goal. He is a psychotic killer, after breaking out of an asylum, found a mask of William Shatner and threw it on. And that quick little moment ended up spawning this big deal about the killer having a mask or some kind of facial obscurity, which later films in in the next decade really capitalized on. The cinematography of Halloween is particularly of note. It is incredibly skillful at building the slow tension, something later slasher films would forego for cheap thrills when they realize there's a lot of money to be made in this genre. But Halloween, the 1978 original, was quite slow. 
Sure, it begins with a bang with young six-year-old Michael inexplicably killing his sister. But after that, it's a good crawl and really tense. Michael spends the majority of the first two-thirds of the film watching. And that was what made him so menacing. The first time I watched Halloween, it was incredibly scary, not because of the kills. Growing up after the 90s, I was very used to slasher films and very desensitized to them. In fact, I got the jokes of Scream before I ever even saw Halloween. So I understood that there were these tropes that were very popular in this style of film. However, Halloween shows what a slow build, even for a very stereotyped plot, what that can do. And the benefit that can come from not getting overly excited as a director or writer. You see, the first, I guess, the most famous scene of pre-killing Michael Myers would be when half his body is standing exposed from a shrub. And you see it from a distance. And, and that shot in the slow, forward-moving camera has been used in many horror films since. That shot particularly was used a lot in the film It Follows. It's this threatening menace, but you can't tell who they are, what their intentions are, are they going to attack, are they going to flee? And it's that discomfort where Halloween thrives. I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the fact that later iterations completely forego this for just aggressive killing for no reason. And Michael becomes this bulldozer that rampages through towns, destroying everything in his wake. Now, that, of course, all happened well after the next uh, few big films in the next five years really started to change the shape of horror cinema. See, we were still in the late 70s in this period, and if you remember back to when I discussed Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and how a lot of that film has a commentary on the death of the golden age of cinema and how more vulgar and crude films began taking the spotlight, one of those being slasher films. Halloween shows the transition between the pleasant films maybe found in the 1960s, the more erotic films of the mid to late 70s, and then the mass commercial horror films of the 80s. You see, cinema began tackling issues such as censorship and what needed to be allowed in a movie. Because if you watch films in that gray area, it is insane. If you watch the original Carrie, the amount of uh, objectionable material, that would be a good way to put it, that is in that film would astonish you. It would never fly. And yet, it existed in the 70s, plain and simple. Halloween showed up to begin that craze of what gets teenagers killed is drugs, sex, and rock and roll. Why don't you get rid of that? Kids are fine. So Halloween showed the heroine being a pure, young, strong-willed, if a little bit naive, young lady. That would, of course, keep all the way through the next two to three decades until Cabin in the Woods would spoof that idea, and now everyone is pretty much used to it. This 
keeping yourself safe in life will end up saving your life pattern persists through every slasher film to the point that you know who's going to die by 30 seconds into the film. You, it ruins the suspense. Halloween started that. So when you watch Halloween, you have to remember the tropes did not exist yet. It kicked that off. And I know that John Carpenter created Halloween, and John Carpenter is a horror master, but boy, this franchise, after this movie, I think took the worst nosedive in quality. This franchise, it got all over the place, to the point where there was a Saw two styled Halloween movie where a bunch of teenagers were locked in a house filled with cameras and Michael Myers picked them off one by one in increasingly shocking ways. It, it got really cheesy. And that's not to say that other horror films didn't eventually get cheesy with their modern remakes, but boy, Halloween got rough. And then, of course, there were the 2000s Rob Zombie remakes. I'm going to tell you right now, those were not very good. Uh, Some people love them, but boy, no one wants a backstory on Michael Myers. That is the fatal flaw of modern remakes. No one wants to know about a voiceless killer's backstory, his upbringing. I don't care. I don't care about that. I want to watch him break into a house and chase around teenagers with a knife. That's why I'm here. That's why I paid the money. That's what I want to see. But unfortunately, Rob Zombie had other plans. He thought it would be fun to make a very aggressively offensive movie in sound, in visuals, and even in writing quality. So thanks, Rob. John Carpenter's original Halloween is very, very good. And I would say that if you watch the original, watch the most recent remake, I believe it was two or three years ago, by John Carpenter again, Watch that one as the sequel. That's all you need. The recent remake sequel, whatever you want to call it, is phenomenal. It's not as good as the original, good being a generous term, but it recaptures the same quality and a good bit of the slow build. Not as much of the slow build as the original had, but a good bit of that. The original, of course, had a very famous one-shot take where he walked through the neighborhood, went in and out of some houses, And they recreate that somewhat in the newer film. So if you're going to watch two Halloween movies, those are the ones to watch. And that wrapped up 1978. You see, the next year, another very influential film debuted. So stick around. Let's find out what 1979 had in store. Alien. The 1979 science fiction horror film was amazing, and I would say still is amazing. It is a feat of any horror movie, let alone a science fiction film. The original, of course, was directed by Ridley Scott, and it features one of the most terrifying and unpleasant monsters in cinema. The story follows a ragtag group of astronauts 
one of which is named Ripley. The rest of the crew's names don't matter because they don't make it out alive. You see, Ripley is the more level-headed but stern one in the group. The rest are a little more uh, out there in their personalities, is a good way to put it. Well, this crew has been flying in space for a very long time, and they're on a simple mission to go to, I don't know, is it some, it's some asteroid, some planet? It's very simple. Cargo mission. Well, they get an emergency signal. They're interrupted, and they decide to help out where that emergency signal came from. Upon landing on that planet, they find an alien ship with an alien life form dead. They see a large hole, a crater in this alien's chest. They then see a room filled with basketball-sized eggs. One of these astronauts, the real brainiac of the group, decides to look at one of the eggs very close as the top of it opens up. And then comes one of the most famous scenes in film history, a face-hugger, little, just picture a crab spider thing with really gross slimy skin, jumps wraps itself around the guy's head, its tail wraps around his neck, and he falls down. They bring him back onto the ship, and they they broke quarantine rules, by the way. They officially were supposed to quarantine him, since they didn't know what that was on him. But they decided to break the rules. So, I'm not, I'm not saying that if you break quarantine rules in 2020, an alien will explode out of your torso... I'm just saying you can't be too careful. Anyway, once they're in the ship, the, they do an x-ray, and they see that within this astronaut's stomach, a baby alien is being implanted. Talk about uncomfortable. Now, I haven't talked about this with a lot of people, especially not on this podcast, but I have a fear of things under my skin. Like, I can get a shot, I'm okay with that. But like, have y'all ever had an IV where there's a tube in your skin? The pain doesn't bother me. But if I look at my arm and I see like an IV like under the skin, that wigs me out and I cannot handle it. Alien thrives on that kind of discomfort. So, after scanning the astronaut, they discover a little baby alien. Eventually, the facehugger falls off. They try to cut the face hugger open, see what it is, but it has acid for blood. And then at one of the best scenes ever filmed in history, while they're eating breakfast, that astronaut starts complaining about his stomach hurting. He writhes in pain, falls backwards, knocking everything off the table, screaming, and then bursting out of his chest, a little alien baby. It is unpleasant the first time you see it. And then you get used to it because it's been spoofed to all heck. Anyway, this alien, of course, jumps out, runs away. He's dead because his chest exploded. But the rest of the crew doesn't know what to do because there's this alien that has just escaped and is on the ship somewhere. They can't bring it with them. They don't know what it is. So they decide to, you guessed it, split up and search for it. And that's where this film finds its magic. You see, the limited space, the fact that you cannot escape this creature, the fact that you know nothing about this creature, and the fact that you are alone. You can hear in the scenes, you'll see Ripley hears what's going on in other parts of the ship. 
but she can't do anything about it. It's this powerlessness and this dread that permeates the film Alien and makes it phenomenal. And the alien, of course, if you Google it and you'll see it, it's a species that takes on some genetic properties of whatever its host body is in. And it can become the perfect killing machine. Its blood is acid and it is incredibly strong. It's nearly silent and it can hunt incredibly well. It is an aggressive threat. And it starts picking the crew off one by one. Boy, is it freaky. Because you know it's there the whole time, but you don't know where. You don't know who is going to die next. It never focuses too much on just one person. And that's where the threat slowly is able to escalate. To where Ripley eventually has to kick it off of the escape pod and then fly off and the ship explodes. Now what made this movie good was the limited space and the fact that there was a singular threat that was almost impossible to catch or kill. And it has this slow build of dread and hopelessness throughout the movie. The sequel, Aliens, decided to go a different direction. And, and this is where I'm going to talk about the Alien franchise as a whole a little bit. Because good lord. Well, Aliens, the sequel, decided what if... She lands on a planet that's already been ravished by these aliens. There's a colony there. However, space marines know about this alien and they can kill them. So she flies down with space marines to kill the aliens. Aliens is far more of a suspenseful action movie than a horror film. However, I would say Aliens is by far the most famous and I'd say the best quality of all of the Alien movies. Because when you watch Alien, you have to have a mild sense of suspended disbelief. Because not only do you know that this creature doesn't exist, the creature also is made with 1979 effects, practical effects. So there are points in the movie where this terrifying alien looks like a dude in a costume. Points where it doesn't, don't worry, but... There are a good bit few that look like that. In the sequel, it's more competent CG to help with the practical effects. And, of course, you get the very famous scene with the Queen and Ripley in a cargo loader exosuit. It is fantastic. And there's something satisfying about watching... A bunch of aliens get killed when you've had to fight to survive. There's something really enjoyable about that that the first film, because of its genre, just does not have. And then, of course, you get later and later iterations that get more and more ludicrous. You see, Aliens as a franchise doesn't have one set that it plays by. Similar to the creature within the franchise, it seems to take on the properties of each genre that it is in. And it relatively succeeds. I'd say the third and fourth ones were pretty bad. Uh, but overall, they're always fun to watch because if you understand the basic rules of the franchise, there are these creatures, they have face huggers, and then it bursts out of the chest, and then it's hard to kill. You can kind of get into it. It's kind of like zombie movies where 
you get used to the rules, you know, if you're bit, what's going to happen. And you get used to the patterns that eventually you're completely numb to the consequences. And, oh, this guy in our group's acting shady. I bet he got bit without asking questions. I'm shooting him, not letting him near my family. You eventually get to where you're making these difficult moral decisions very quick in a very blasé fashion. However, I would be remiss if I did not spend a little bit of time discussing Prometheus and Alien Covenant, or as it was originally titled, Prometheus 2. Prometheus is what would happen if Ridley Scott was given a lot of hallucinogens and then read his original Alien script and then was asked, could you write a book of philosophy that would be written within the world of Alien? And then, before he passed out, he created the movie Prometheus. Prometheus loves to ask questions and hates to answer them. The movie is so barely connected to the Alien franchise that it is only in the most timeline, technical sense, a prequel. It has some serious flaws. Uh, I would say the special effects are phenomenal. The story's passable. The acting, directing, and cinematography is is very good. Very, very good. It, it, you can tell that everyone involved is highly professional, highly talented. But as a member of a franchise, it, it does not work at all. Which is why they changed the title of its sequel... Prometheus 2 to Alien Covenant. Because you see, audiences went to see an alien movie to see an alien, not an eight foot tall albino guy wrestle a giant tentacle monster. Spoiler alert, but you're not missing anything if you skip it. Alien Covenant catches you up on everything that you really needed to know from Prometheus to understand that it is a prequel to the Alien franchise. Alien Covenant is a far more substantial title in that it returns to its horror base while keeping the uncomfortable mythological exhortations that Prometheus reveled in and got lost in. Uh, and Michael Fassbender is amazing in Alien Covenant. And he is the most unsettling character in a world filled with man-eating monsters. You see... As the movie builds, it relies on you knowing how the aliens operate. It relies on this basis of knowledge so you understand the implicit threat without having to be overt. Again, it relies on that sense of dread. You know it's coming, you don't know where. Uh, I would say the weakest part of Alien Covenant is the fact that much of the film relies on characters making dumb decisions to not leave because if they left when they could have, they'd be fine. But the whole, we have to know more and we're driven by science, that, that kind of plot line gets a little old when you've done it for like eight movies. I don't know. It just gets old. And I, I get it. Rid, I, I get it. I get it. Ridley. That's the message. Oh, 
You shouldn't mess with nature even if you're a scientist, because it could grab your face and make an alien burst out of your stomach. Thanks, Ridley. That's, that's really great. Well, I think we've about beaten that horse to death. So let's move on to the next film, the next great horror giant. And I will say this is not my favorite, but you know what? We're going to get through it. So I'll see you around the bend for the next classic horror. Nineteen eighty saw the release of, by far, one of my favorite slasher films, Alone. Now, if you're listening to my review of Alien, you'll know that at the end I said this is not one of my favorite franchises. That's right. The franchise is terrible. But this singular film is one of my favorites. And that is Friday the 13th. You see, Friday the 13th, one, the original, did not have Jason Voorhees. What? That's right. That blew my mind when I learned that. I'd only ever seen one of the dozen Friday the 13th sequels, I guess. And Jason Voorhees is always in there with his hockey mask, chopping people up with a machete and running around camp. You see... What I didn't like about the franchise was always how formulaic it was. A bunch of teenagers go to Camp Crystal Lake, they do drugs, they sleep together, they get stabbed. It's very, very basic, and it's very linear and dull. At a certain point, there's very little suspense. And I would say even in the first one, there's not that much suspense. It's more of a mystery survival mix. It's very slasher, and it's very early 80s. It's not an amazing film, but of every slasher film ever made, it's my favorite because it's the least slasher. You see, Friday the 13th, the original, follows a group of teenagers going to Camp Crystal Lake. They sit around the campfire and they share the story that has now been beaten to death. You see, years and years ago, before the teenagers were there, a young Jason Voorhees uh, decided to go on his own out into the lake, go swimming. The teenage counselors, who were supposed to be watching young Jason, decided to run off behind a shady tree, dribble off those Bobby Brooks slacks, and do what they please. So as a result, young Jason died, poor baby. He drowned in the lake and was never seen from since. Spooky story, right? Well, the teenagers thought it was fun, so they joked around, and I think they smoked some pot. If not that, some other things, and had a good old time. Well, later, a masked killer shows up wearing a bag over the killer's head. This killer begins knocking off these students one by one, stabbing them with a knife. It is terrifying. Eventually, the killer gets a machete. Horrifying. You never see who this killer is, and it's a mystery. The teens begin to think that it's the ghost of Jason Voorhees come to take revenge for their naughty activities at Camp Crystal Lake. Finally, the reveal at the end. There was no ghost. In fact, it was Jason's mother the whole time. She was driven insane by the death of her child that 
she decided to take revenge and kill anyone who dare fornicate at Camp Crystal Lake. See, that's a satisfying film. It, it's got the horror elements, it's got some slasher elements, and it had a good little twist ending. And then the director realized he could make a lot of money. So they tacked on this scene where the uh, surviving young lady is seen on the lake. She's having a good time. And then this half-decayed body of young Jason Voorhees jumps out of the lake, grabs her out of the boat, and pulls her into the water. It's a very famous scene because a lot of people were very much scared of that scene. It was, it's kind of freaky. Well, as a result, you don't know if it's a dream or a premonition or if something's happened. Well, thankfully, the director was able to turn that into a bunch of sequels for the next two and a half decades. Thank goodness. So we got one of what I would say is the least entertaining franchises to be spawned from this. Now, I harp on how much I don't like it because it's very mass produced. It's very soulless, similar to Jason Voorhees. He's a husk, and that's all he is. Unfortunately, he's the most interesting part of any Friday the 13th film. The first 20 minutes where you set up who the teens are and they have to go over the same story I told you a little bit ago, it is so frustrating because you know, oh, there's one young lady who doesn't want to sleep with her boyfriend and is real interested in her career. Okay, she lives. Everyone else dies. That's the end. I just saved you two hours. It gets old, and I don't like Friday the 13th, and if I keep going into this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start, start getting annoyed. Because they had such a cool idea in the first movie that they just threw it away, and it's really annoying. Well, there are some films later on, the Freddy vs. Jason films, and I'll get to those. Just wait, I'll get to those. But you're going to have to stick around for the rest of the special for me to get to those particular modern iterations. Oh, the Friday the 13th remake that was made by Michael Bay added nothing new to the franchise and was a soulless cash grab. Okay, there, I think we knocked out a a lot of movies. Oh, Jason X, by far the funniest. It is also the worst. Okay, there, we just, we got a bunch of little, a bunch of little quick words in there. Yeah, it was fun. All right, now we're gonna keep moving and get to the next great giant in classic horror you see the next film is my favorite horror film of all time stick around let's find out what gives me the chills nineteen eighty two saw John Carpenter have a phenomenal follow up to his widely successful Halloween films. In nineteen eighty two, horror cinema was forever changed by the introduction of The Thing. The Thing follows a group of Alaskan explorers who, upon finding a strange dog, bite off more than they can chew. See, the dog starts acting weird, and each character, has, of course, has their private interaction with the dog, where they'll go, they'll pet it, they don't understand. And then one of them sees that the dog is 
misshapen. The dog starts changing. The dog eventually becomes very monstrous, and the group has to burn it to stop it. They then notice that one of the crew members' hands got burned, and it changes shape into long, spindly tentacle fingers. He lets out a low growl warning to the rest of the crew, who all huddle inside their camp. Now locked in this building with each other, they realize what they're facing. And this is where the thing gets under your skin, no pun intended. You see, the monster in The Thing is an alien creature that when it eats someone or something, it can then take the shape, mannerisms, and voice of that thing to then stalk and kill its next victim. This leads to where the thing shines. The real terror of this movie is the paranoia that sweeps through the crew. They are all scared and they all are pointing fingers at each other because any one of them could be an imposter. That's right. This is a film adaptation of the popular mobile game uh, Among Us. There you go. Just thought I'd shout that out. Anyway, in the movie, uh, these long periods of the film in which the characters are trying to find out who the monster is, learn about the monster, and not trust each other, but still rely on each other for help, it is also paralleled to scenes of horrific body horror, as when a character is burned or realized to be the thing, the monster, instead of bursting out of the body, such as it did in Alien, uses the body to change because it's a shape-shifting monster. You will then see someone's head rise out of their body with tentacles following and, and long spider legs sprout up and crawl along the ceiling. Someone's arm will fall off and a bunch of tiny legs and claws will come out of that arm and it will crawl around and try to attack people. You see, all the creature has to do is get some of your DNA and then it can look just like you. It is terrifying. Because you don't know when these scenes are coming. The way that John Carpenter used the skills he really honed in on Halloween to have a low level of tension and dread throughout the whole movie. You don't know when it's building or when you can rest. You genuinely have no clue what's going to happen and it leaves you just on the edge of your seat. You have no idea when suddenly... A character you've grown to like is a monster. And you have to real quickly re-gear your brain to figure out, okay, this person's safe, this person's not. And it ends, oh, like you'd expect, uh, with two characters who could easily be the thing. Easily. And there are hundreds of theories out there of who is the thing at the end of the movie. But what's important is that it ends with the two characters deciding that one of them is. They don't know who. So they decide to wait and see what happens. And it's the perfect ending because the tension never lets up. It is always tense. You're always on the edge of your seat, not knowing where the threat is, where it's going to come from. And John Carpenter uses that idea of 
an outside intruder on a peaceful existence that Halloween used very well, but he takes it a step further where there is no longer an outside intruder. It is that those closest to us could be the threat just masquerading as a friend. And it gets under your skin. It's very well done. It's very well shot. The acting is phenomenal. And that's something that I haven't said broadly about these films that I'm talking about. The acting, with a few exceptions, with, with a few, well, yeah, let's, let's be real, but generally in the really professional, uh, competent, classic horror films, the acting is, is very well done. It's very believable. The Thing is not a date movie horror film. It's a little bit more cerebral in that you can't really turn away. It's not a jump scare frenzy. It's a simmering, sometimes boiling level of terror throughout. Whereas a film like Friday the 13th is more of a date night horror movie where there's a threat, it's very obvious, and there are jump scares. And that's why I've never been a big fan of slasher films. They, they're very formulaic, and there's not much more to them. There's the obvious, blatant threat. Whereas movies like The Thing always have a much more profound effect on me. There's a threat, and it's significant, but you don't know where it is. And it might just be those closest to you. I don't know. It's a lot more scary to me. Well... Now that we've wrapped up 1982, how about we hit the final big name and how it kind of turned a lot of these franchises down. You see, we're getting into the mid-80s now. And the mid-80s was when things started to change in cinema. We've gone from a slow burn to a little bit faster burn with Friday the 13th to constant dread in the thing. Now let's see a bizarre mixture of the two with our final entry. Here, at In My Own Words. Stick around. Nineteen eighty-four. What a year, right? This film is by far the most stereotypically eighties movie on the list. And, for a very long time, this was my favorite slasher villain. Up until, up until I, I guess, up until I really got sick of him. A Nightmare on Elm Street, debuted in 1984, written and directed by Wes Craven. A Nightmare on Elm Street is an interesting little movie, because if you haven't seen it, or maybe you saw it once, you probably forgot that my boy Johnny Depp is in it for some reason. <laughs> Young Johnny Depp, who just hot off his heels from doing the original 21 Jump Street. You know, it's weird. Well, anyway, I mean, it totally takes you out of the movie when you see uh, Jack Sparrow in the movie. It's, it's bizarre. Uh, he gets sucked up into a bed and exploded onto a ceiling. It's really weird. In case you're unfamiliar with the plot of A Nightmare on Elm Street, which I don't think many of you are, so this will be brief. But in case you're unfamiliar with the plot, 
a bunch of teenagers start having nightmares, go figure, of a disfigured man wearing a glove covered in knives chasing them. In a way to get away from him, they decide to take some sort of stimulant to stay awake. And the longer they stay awake, their brain starts misfiring and they begin having waking nightmares where they will see uh, this being hunting them. This being, of course, is the great Freddy Krueger. Well, since all the teenagers begin having the same nightmare of the same guy, they start looking into this name, figuring out what the deal is. Soon, the teens actually start dying. They will be killed in the dream world and die in the real world. Spooky. Well, they uncover this history that Freddy Krueger used to go by Fred Krueger, and he used to work at the local school with children. The parents are reluctant to talk about what happened, and then the teens discover that their parents, the ones meant to protect them, had actually attacked this teacher for hurting and possibly molesting these kids. Now, the kids that he was accused of being inappropriate with are the teens in the movie. The parents then, with no evidence at all, decided to attack the school, chase Fred, and burned his house down around him, thus disfiguring him. Well, I would like to take a quick aside. Let's just take real quick. And I want to talk about the fact that this really happened in the 80s. Not the burning a man alive part. But in 1980 in Bakersfield, California, uh, the Kern County uh, Satanic Panic was in full swing when several young girls from a certain daycare were, it came out later, were coached by their grandparents to state that the school's administrators had been practicing demonic worship and engaging in sex orgies. This, of course, was all proven false, but it resulted in many that worked at the school being convicted. It, the sentences have been since overturned, but their lives were ruined because of false allegations from children being coached to say certain things. Now, that was the backdrop of A Nightmare on Elm Street. Interestingly enough, Wes Craven did not take the more historically accurate route, and he decided to take, oh, these kids must have just faked it to get the guy in trouble. And that's what it leads you to believe. And then at the end, the reveal is that, no, Freddy Krueger was a pedophile. Ha! Ah, that's the twist. It's sad. Well, he's bent on revenge of punishing the parents by taking all of their children from them permanently. And the only way he can do that is in their dreams because he's cursed for being so terrible and murdered. Well, that's his purpose in life. And he decides to hunt these teens down. And what made Nightmare on Elm Street so memorable was, of course, the music, the high wave synth throughout the film is overpowering and highly endearing. The uh, practical effects were pretty ingenious and clever. And Robert England, 
the uh, actor for Freddy, he loved the classic film effects because they had to be very well thought out. They had to be very clever with how they did it because they wanted to do very impossible things. They wanted to have a hallway turn into uh, molasses. They wanted to have Freddy lean through a wall as if it was paper. It's fascinating what they did, and if you're looking into filmmaking, I would spend some time looking at how they did the effects of A Nightmare on Elm Street. It's very cool. Uh, they had to be really ingenious with what they wanted to do on film and how they wanted it to look. We would say it's kind of cheesy nowadays, but they did a good job. The Nightmare on Elm Street remake, of course made by Michael Bay, was nothing new. It was, it was almost a by-the-numbers remake. I liked it the best of all the remakes of these 80s slashers. It took a more uh, slow-build mystery horror, similar to It Chapter 1, uh, where there's this threat and you get your very predictable moments of, of what I would call a high-end horror, where it's scary because it's threatening, not because it's necessarily scary. It's more loud than scary. But... It leads you to solving this mystery. It was not Robert England, and I'll be honest, he did a good job, the other guy. I don't remember the other guy, because who cares? Uh, he was good, and, and he had a much more subtle menace to him than Robert England did. Robert England had a more outlandish menace to him, a little more cartoony, and that's where the 1984 style of that film kind of shows off, is Robert England is a character actor, and he's a bit much. Unlike our other two slasher films I discussed, Halloween and Friday the 13th, in this slasher, the monster has a voice, and he uses that voice a lot. You see, by this point in cinema, it was well established that the monster brings in the money. The identity of the monster is how you sell and how you advertise. You see, Robert England stepped into the world of Freddy Krueger and never left. The outlandish Robert England proceeded to be the identity of Freddy Krueger for the next decade and a half. In fact, in the later sequel, reboot, remake, whatever you call him, uh, Freddy vs. Jason, he still plays Freddy Krueger. It wasn't until the full reboot, remake, Ah, Hollywood, stop. A Nightmare on Elm Street in which Robert England was replaced with someone with much more subtle menace to them. You see, in Freddy vs. Jason, uh, Robert England's outlandish performance is matched by whatever lunk played Jason Voorhees who did not make a noise. And unfortunately, that creates a dynamic in which you really see the black and white difference of the early slasher films. The threat was a silent, unknown intruder versus the threat is this cartoon. And Freddy vs. Jason unfortunately suffered from the fact that it wanted to have a big battle between the two, but it couldn't afford to have a two-hour big battle between the two. So it had about an hour and a half of nonsense of a Friday the 13th interlaced with a Nightmare on Elm Street and then then they fought. It wasn't very good. It, it didn't work to what it could be and I'll be honest it 
could have been very good. And I wouldn't be surprised if they decided to do that idea again, because the idea could have been a lot of fun. And when I was young, I was too young to see the movie as it was R-rated. But I always wanted to see it because it looked interesting. And then when I did see it much later in life, I enjoyed it. It was one of the most fun things. It's like watching two beings that you had on a pedestal that were considered these insane beings who could control their universes. When they clash, it's goofy and it's kind of silly, but you're kind of excited. It was like... uh, Yeah, I was never the biggest Marvel fan. Uh, They had some really good movies, and they had some really bad movies. I never liked the cartoony aspect of a lot of Marvel movies. But when I went to see Avengers Endgame, holy moly, it was fun to see all those characters in one movie. It's that kind of deal. So I get why it was made, but it wasn't scary. And it certainly could have been a lot better. It... It was as if it knew what it wanted to do, but boy, did it not know how to do it. But this is not a review of Freddy vs. Jason, so let's get back to the original A Nightmare on Elm Street. Ultimately, what A Nightmare on Elm Street shows is that Hollywood realized, after making some very good horror movies built on silence and suspense, that the way you make money with teenagers who just want to watch a date night horror movie is you create a cartoon villain in a real world. And that resulted in the less than scary, more uh, endearing (laughs) A Nightmare on Elm Street. Very much a product of its time, and as a result, the remakes never quite land. Now, before we finish up, I'd like to take a quick moment just to thank all of you. You see, a year ago, on October 31st, I debuted the first episode of In My Own Words. I didn't quite know what I wanted the podcast to be, but I knew I wanted to talk about something I was passionate about. That was movies. I'm not some kind of high-minded film scholar, and I don't always know the best way to phrase my opinions, but really, I just wanted an outlet where I could express how much I love, I'd say, all genres of cinema and how much I love the art of making films. And and I like that filmmaking has both a very conceptual, artistic aspect to it, but also a very technical, practical aspect. There's the idea that the writer has. There's the vision that the director has. But then there's also the technical feet-on-the-ground aspect of a camera crew and the sound crew and the lighting and stunts and all of that blending together and and the way people come together to create this film and hundreds of people will work on something for months and then maybe it doesn't do the best in cinema, maybe it does phenomenally well, but just the creation of it, even if it's a bad movie, is incredible. And that's why when you see very well-made films... uh, kind of takes you back and and it takes my breath away that you can create such great ideas and I know I'm not talking about artistic films I might apply artistic literary theory to 
very commercialized films, but I just wanted to express how incredible good stories and good production of these stories can be and how much they can have an impact on someone. So I wanted to thank everyone that has listened, keeps listening. And uh, real quick, a couple production notes before I head out and get some trick-or-treating done. I want to first of all say we will be having the second episode of the television special. will be coming out this calendar year. This calendar year. So by December 31st, I will have part two. It will be on a different genre of television other than comedies. I know a lot of people have asked me about the next episode, so don't worry. Everyone, calm down. It's all right. It's coming. Uh, also, I would like to say that uh, hopefully I can do a re-review of Joker uh, by the end of this season. Now, I might not get to it, so this might end up getting edited out in the future, but I wanted to say that my original review, since I didn't quite know what I was doing wasn't the best, and I really liked Joker, but I also know it was slightly derivative. So, I would like to be able to create a full review that's worthy of the film Joker. And it'd be fun to remake my first, (laughs) you know? Well, this has been the Halloween special of In My Own Words. I'm your host, Wes Young. Make sure you follow me on Facebook and Instagram. Facebook would be in my own words, and Instagram would be at in my own words official. You can also send me an email, imowpodcast at gmail.com, if you would like to communicate or give ideas for a review. I'm Wes Young. This has been a great one and a great year. Be safe out there. I'll see you around. Thanks for listening. Have a good one.